You are listening to The Natural Philosopher with Dr. Mick Pope, a podcast on science, the environment, and the Christian faith. This podcast is written and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations, acknowledging that sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. Well, welcome to another episode of The Natural Philosopher with me, Dr. Mick Pope. It's nearly Tuesday morning here in Australia as I record, nearly the 13th of April. And during the week I've thought about what I might do for this program. I just finished a book by Rob Bell. I hope to talk about that another time. What is the Bible? And been reading a lot of books about nature of the Bible lately, a lot of stuff by Peter Enns, for example, and think it's an area worth looking at because, of course, how we frame problems like climate change and environmental issues and justice issues is is affected, is shaped by the way in which we understand the Bible. I was also reading a paper today that looked at the relationship between the Anthropocene, so the human geological era, if you will, and the biosphere, so the living parts of the Earth system, interact. And it's a really good, it's long, uh, but good kind of review paper. And I'd love to talk about that. And I got halfway through it. So what I've done is dig out a couple of pieces I wrote a few years back, which I still think are current and valuable. And the first one for the first half of the program, I entitled, and the title got changed by an editor, so I'm not saying who I wrote this for. The title of the paper is Damn Your Denial. Damn Your Denial. And it's a piece on climate change denial. So I'm going to read it to you and add comments as appropriate. So you'd be familiar now listening to me and this podcast that I have a tendency to shoot from the hip or indeed the lip. <laughs> so, you know, shooting from the hip is kind of, a, I guess, a, a something you take from old American Western movies. Uh, you know, I've got a big mouth at times, okay? And sometimes I'll say what I think. And, and this piece was one of those things and I get, therefore... This part of the podcast is one of those things that expresses a bit of frustration. Now, to give you a a background, I've been a meteorologist for over 20 years. I gained a PhD in climate science, and it took me over eight years. Uh, It took me seven years, that's right. Uh, And that was eight years when I wrote this piece. It's over a decade now. And I've been teaching climate science for over a decade and reading the peer-reviewed literature and, and trying to keep up with what's current and what's consensus science and so on. And I haven't done any active research in the area for a little while. That's on my to-do list to get my hands dirty again. And I give talks from time to time and, and I speak spe- specifically to Christian groups. I've been doing that for close on two decades. And there'll always be particularly church groups, there'll always be the odd, you know, maybe one or two, I don't mean odd, <laughs> a figure of speech, is in one or two, no, um, denialist. And the, the strategy is, 
people, the basic approach is that they think they can trump me or indeed the, the peer review science with the quote, but the climate has always been changing. And I've no doubt you've heard that before. If you get into conversations with family or friends and particularly Christian circles, this is problematic. And they will say that the climate has always been changing as if that trumps the idea that now human beings are responsible. And, and sometimes I write, and I, I'm accused, I have been accused in the past of being an, an ivory tower academic. I nearly fell over when I read that, actually. I was like, really? Um, but that's always trotted out. Those kind of things, ad hominems, you know, attacks on the person, playing, to use a phrase, playing the ball and not the man or the woman or the person, whatever. You get the picture. It's kind of taken from English football. It comes out when it's clear they can't argue against the science. Not my science, but the peer-reviewed consensus type science. So if you can't argue the science because you don't understand it or you're being presented with a bunch of facts that it's difficult to deny with reasoned logical arguments, therefore you, you, you attack the person. And people will often say, and on this and other things, and I've noticed this a lot in the COVID period too, is... Well, I'm entitled to my opinion. And that presumes underneath it that an opinion is is equally valid, if not more so in the context, over peer-reviewed scientific literature. Which, as I've talked about in other programs, is we know that that's provisional understanding. But nonetheless, it's... You know, and I know one person for whom peer-reviewed review uh, literature in, in any field is a vast conspiracy. So I, I want to say denialism is not just, quote, another opinion. It's just plain wrong. Now, a good number of years ago, in 2012, a philosopher, Patrick Stokes, wrote a piece entitled, No, You're Not Entitled to Your Opinion. He argued that we are entitled to hold as opinions only those things we can argue for only those things that we can actually mount arguments for. Everything else is an act of sheltering beliefs that we should abandon, which is pretty in your face, isn't it? Now, of course, the problem lies in what we mean by opinion. Now, statements about what's the best flavour of ice cream, the best football team or sporting code, uh, will always be purely personal, purely subjective. In, in one sense, you can't argue for that, but in another, well... If I like vanilla over all other flavours, then for me, vanilla is the best flavour because there's no objective standard on which to measure that. It's what your taste buds dictate that you like. It's what your genetics dictate that you like, your history, um, psychological associations, so on and so forth. Flavours are largely personal opinion, or they're entirely purely personal. People's choice of football team relies on mere statistics of that football team. So, you know, once upon a time, I used to follow the Collingwood Football Club as an AFL team. Why? Because my mum did. And eventually I lost interest in AFL, so, you know, it, it, it's by the by for me. Now, of course, it would be remiss uh, to ignore the phenomena of scientism, the idea that science explains the entire reality without remainder, and to be sure, I don't believe in science the same way in which I believe in God, you know, as, as a Christian, as a 
these days calling myself a Christian um, humanist. It's not the same kind of. It's a category mistake to, to to miss, you know, confuse the two. Now, science answers some fascinating questions about the way the world works and has fascinated me since I was about five years of age. But it does not, indeed, it cannot provide me with the answer to the question: Does life have any meaning? It's simply outside of what it is designed to do. But scientism should not become a label used to ignore or reject scientific results I don't like or find hard to square with my reading of the Bible. Too often Christians throw against climate change science some poorly constructed hermeneutical framework, that's why of reading the Bible, as the way to read the Bible, hence why I want to talk about you know, Rob Bell's book another time, and show therefore that climate change science must be wrong. You know how ridiculous it looks to the outside world that we Christians who worship a God we've never seen reject the results of science that we can see, measure and test. So we should let science be our guide. Now it's a human activity, subject to human sin, weakness, frailties, deceit, etc. But then so is theology. I mean, why else do we have so many different um, denominations, theological interpretations of texts, uh, but of course naturally ours is the right one, our tradition, our way of thinking. But also if um, science is subject to these weaknesses and theology is subject to these weaknesses, so is the knowledge of quote-unquote everyday people, the non-specialist, the non-expert. You can be as deceived as any scientist, you can be blinded uh, by your own personal theories, and if you're not scientifically literate, all the more so when it comes to matters of science. If you haven't done it, you haven't studied it in depth, what makes you think you can critique it? Now, of course, we all commit acts of confirmation bias, and who am I to stand and say I'm immune from this? Why should you believe me? Why listen to this podcast? It's not arrogant for me to claim access to this truth. Now, we need to recognize that we're all predisposed to believing one thing or another, but that does not excuse us from examining why we believe certain things. A few years ago, an in-depth survey by the Pew Research Center showed that political belief strongly affects acceptance of the truth of climate change science. The more conservative you are, so for example the Tea Party uh, in the US, the more you reject the science and believe that climate scientists are in it for the money, which is just a laughable proposition. For Liberal Democrats, it's the opposite. But science is a useful description of the real world. I mean, try jumping off a building. Whether you accept Isaac Newton's theory of gravity and reject Einstein as the Nazis did, or believe in general relativity, you'll die because you'll hit the ground real hard. We might read the data from different political or indeed theological frameworks. Conservative white Christians who are little affected by climate change in the US, compared to others, are more keen to ascribe climate change, if they believe it at all, to the end times than black or Latino Christians who suffer from events like Hurricane Katrina. But nonetheless, there is data to read, to analyse, etc. And unless you want to work with it yourself, you have to adjudge what those who are involved directly in the science are saying. You also need to examine why it is that you accept or reject the science. So you've got to examine your own motives. I run out of time here. So, you know, when I was doing my PhD, some of my results did not turn out the way I expected. I spent a fair bit of time trying to show 
from my data the results that I expected, and the fact that I did so was evidence that I wasn't sceptical enough about my own theories. The fact that I finally reached a different conclusion shows I wasn't in denial. So, you know, don't be in denial over climate change. Denialism is not the same as legitimate scepticism. Denialism is more a mental framework uh, rather than scepticism, which is a form of hermeneutic. Um, Now, this would all be uninteresting if it were a theory about diamond stars. There was a discovery in 2011 by um, Australian astrophysicist Matthew Bales uh, and he noted that people seem to trust the scientific method until it applies to something like climate change, then all bets are off. He noted that the scientific method is the same in both cases, theory, evidence, observation, testing and repetition. To be sure, there is variation in the details between different scientific disciplines. However, at the broader level, it can be argued that the scientific method is really just the Socratic method, just asking questions in a more formalised and precise garb. We might just call it honest, truth-oriented epistemology. That is a way of knowing that's oriented towards the truth. Critical realism, the idea that there is an objective reality we can know in progressively greater detail through inquiry and interaction with the evidence, is just as much a part of good theology as it is good science. So if accepting climate scientists just honest respect for the truth, isn't denial for theological reasons simply breaking the commandment you should not bear false witness against your neighbour. The commandment was critical uh, in, in the world uh, where the word of two or three people could result in someone being executed. So let me contend something, that Christians in their continual denial of the truth, that we are responsible for warming the planet, will be directly responsible, in a minor way perhaps, for people's deaths. Even those of us who accept the science are complicit in the deaths of people from heat waves, forest fires and so on, because you know we live a life that contributes to the carbon dioxide emissions. We continue to tip the planet in one direction. At least I, even though my own lifestyle contributes to this, don't deny the truth that this is the, the case. And the standard argument that we, you know, uh, God's judging the sinful world, and so maybe we're just playing our part. Remember what God said to the Assyrians who carried out God's judgment on Israel. Um, They were too zealous in their task and enjoyed it too much and God ultimately judged them. But all of this is empty ranting on my part unless the science holds up. Self-righteous canting for that. But I'm no gloating Jonah in all of this and the science does hold up. Um, There's a wonderful mic drop video. I may have spoken about this before by a fellow called Richard Muller, a PhD in physics. In a video interview, he tells how he started out as sceptical of climate science and the theory of greenhouse gases, the quantity, of the, the quality of the data and the biases in its selection. So he took it upon himself, together with Nobel Prize winning physicists, to identify, look at the systematic errors in the data, to uh, go back further than the IPCC data set did. And after all that effort, funded by someone who would have loved to have found him to, uh, him to find that the science was an error, found that his data agreed with all the other temperature data sets which already existed and have been telling people for decades that the planet was warming and we were responsible. And he matched the temperature record with carbon dioxide levels and the inclusion of volcanoes and found that it matched precisely. And this is a person who wrote a graduate textbook on how the Earth's orbit affected 
sunlight distribution on the planet and therefore the history of uh, ice ages. So someone who was sceptical, not a denialist, but sceptical for scientific reasons, found in essence that he agreed with the standard signs. That's not denialism, that's scepticism. I don't argue with sceptics, I'm no good at it and I'm just too tired for it. I'm too exhausted by the threats of climate change, too tired with the pointless arguing while the world goes to hell in a handbasket. I mean, I'll put arguments up in various Facebook forums, etc, etc. Oftentimes I just think it's more for the sake of those who are watching, who want to see someone defending um, the basic truth of the signs. I can't save the world by doing this, but I can and I do try to motivate people who are willing to listen to the task of being good Samaritans to our neighbours suffering from climate change and our neighbours in future who will do so. Maybe I'm a social justice wizard uh, than a social justice warrior. So I won't argue with sceptics. To, to those I say Sir Arthur Eddington is, is supposed to have said when people told him that stars were not hot enough to fuse hydrogen atoms together if you don't think they were warming the planet, go find a hotter place. Damn your denialism. And I'll get back to you shortly in the second half of the program. Welcome back to the program, and after that rather um, slightly what aggro, aggravated, um, angry rant on denialism, I want to uh, present to you another piece, and it's entitled "Reenchanting Creation: Reflections on Monbiot's Forget the Environment." George Monbiot writes for the Guardian. Uh, yes, I read the Guardian quite a bit. I think it's good on its environment coverage by and large. And several years ago, he wrote a piece uh, challenging us in our language and challenges us in our language when it comes to talking about topics like the environment, climate change and extinctions. Our current vocabulary, he argues, fails to do justice to the wonder and fails to convey the awe we could and should feel. Uh, this is uh, this is a wonderful thing to read. A, a number of years ago, I read a great book, uh, Reenchanting Nature by Alistair McGrath. Um, there's a standard kind of joke that if you rang Alistair McGrath up and got his secretary, and his secretary told you that Alistair McGrath can't come to the phone, he's writing a book, it would be perfectly justified of you to say, well, that's fine, I'll wait. Uh, he's written an incredible number of books, um, over the years and is a very uh, entertaining and clear and thoughtful uh, writer. So I really like this idea, having read that book some years ago, about this idea of re-enchanting creation, about finding, well, his words, not Monbiot's, but uh, they share the idea that we need to have rich language. And, and what Monbiot's getting at, I think, is that 
apart from the, the fact that we can understate the problems we face, uh, what he complains about is the language we use draws ecology into the economy within a neoliberal framework that only values something if we can place economic value on it. So we tend to talk about ecosystem services and that's all well and good. And I'm getting ahead of myself in terms of what I've written, but ecosystem services is really um, economic language. And that's useful from a, a very pragmatic and a survivalist perspective. Uh, we want to continue in an environment that supports us, but you need to ask serious questions about what it is that's supporting. Anyway, the problem, according to Monbiot, is not that we see nature, and for Christians that really means creation. We acknowledge that it's not just um, a Epicurean, is that the one, you know, atoms in motion, uh, randomly moving about until something comes together. But a, an intentional, intentional to a degree, uh, we can argue about the nature of that in another episode about the relationship between things like emergence and convergence and evolution and so on, physical process, and the divine mind and will. But nonetheless, we understand uh, what we see to be creation as providing us with great bounties. So air to breathe, water to drink, soil for our food, and a vast variety of beauty for us to enjoy and experience. Rather, the problem arises when we make a direct equivalence between these things and money. That is, when we reduce the complexity of nature to mere ecosystem services as I touched upon, that we can buy, trade, sell, or offset. And of course, there's some practical issues with carbon offsets, because, you know, say you fly, and I've talked before about why I think flying is, you know, it's a relative good. If we could do it without adding greenhouse gases as much as Flying is a, a small fraction. It is representative of the lifestyle that the 1% of us, which includes me, live and are impacted upon the planet. But carbon offsets that you can pay some money and you'll plant a tree, which won't absorb nearly as much carbon as you emit now for a long, long time. So, it, And as the planet warms, those offsets tend to weaken. We get uh, a, a negative feedback. As, as forests die or just, just can't sustain that level of uptake. So offsets are an interesting thing when it comes to carbon. So in other words, this utilitarian approach reduces nature, or for us creation, to something that exists merely for our own use with no intrinsic value of its own. And there are lots of Christians who buy this, Christians who follow this uh, idea and I'll, I'll have to talk about it in more detail in the time of eco-modernism and really by hook, line and sinker um, that part of Genesis you know, out of all context that talks about being fruitful and multiplying and ruling over this, that and the other. Now to some this is inherently speciest that is we elevate our own species above the well-being of all others. Um, that's a, a criteria classification I kind of struggle to get my head around, but nonetheless I can see what it means in this context, that we only think about ourselves and don't see anything else as having value for its own sake. And, you know, as Christians, of course, it's value to God. 
Scripture points to creation, which in turn not only points to the wise God who created it, but it also has its own purpose and interests apart from our own. And you read Psalm 104, and it speaks of that. And Genesis 21 and 22 talks about creation being fruitful and multiplying, and birds of the air and, and fish in the ocean. Uh, more revealing, and this is where a considered theology comes in, is when Monbiot writes about a trip to see beavers repopulating a river in Devon. One friend exclaims to him, quote, It's like a pilgrimage, isn't it? And Monbiot believes that this hints at the origins of religion. Now, you can argue that to the blue in the face uh, and what role that might play and how that fits into a theological scheme of, again, of theology of evolution and um, uh, and thinking about religion in a, in a scientific framework. But anyway, we'll leave that aside for another time. Now, it would be easy for us to have a knee-jerk reaction seeing all of this as quote-unquote paganism, again, as if that was entirely a bad thing, and syncretism, which is something I've yet again read on the socials recently. But let's look at the Bible. Now, the following argument is not quite how I would construct it these days, but it, you know, let's run with it. Old Testament scholar John Walton has identified the creation account of Genesis 1, describes the ordering of creation as a temple. Now, it uses the same language uh, used to describe the building of the tabernacle. That's kind of the, the key thing. So it's like creation is a protological temple. It's a temple in kind of basic form or undeveloped. And it seems to be also embedded in the idea of divine rest, which is the purpose of Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3, is an argument about the Sabbath, why, we have the, why the Jews had Sabbath. And the Sabbath means... means more than rest, it means ceasing from labor. Uh, but in Exodus 20, 11, uh, Sabbath is, is linked with rest. And then this word for rest that's picked up there is, is used again later in Psalm 132, which is a, a psalm of ascents. It's something that you'd sing when you went up to the temple. Uh, and verses 7 and 8 in particular have this wonderful poetic parallelism. So the temple is where God's dwelling place is, where God's resting place is. And God's footstool is the Ark of the Covenant. Now, a footstool is part of a throne, so the implications of which is that God rules from where God rests, where God rests, the divine throne room. And the rest is tied to creation. Uh, that the rest is tied to creation. The Sabbath rest implies that creation itself is a temple created for God to dwell in, which is also a sense you get from Genesis two and three. Uh, with the garden and God walks in the garden and, and there's all this language of creation used um, all tied up in divine presence which is what sanctifies a location Isaiah 66 verse 1 again nails it um, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool where is the house you will build for me where will my resting place be uh, God dwells everywhere but God condescends to dwell in particular places at particular times and of course, in Genesis 1, 26 to 28, as Australian theologian Rick Watts points out, the last thing to go in a temple in the ancient Near East as in today is the idols, the representation of the deity. And and the similarity between the surrounding nations and what Israel is saying is, is no accident, but it's not just a matter of copying uh, what other people were saying, but it's just that um, the air that people breathe. And there's a number of scholars who talk about this. There's Peter Enns. Uh, John Walton, uh, Gregory Mobley, uh, to, just for a few. 
So the Israelites, they took the surrounding nation's stories and they made polemical arguments um, out of them and used the language that people were using. Now, notwithstanding the many passages about pagan shrines under every tree, about Baals and Asherahs, there's no reason why we can't worship God through creation. Hear me right, I'm not talking about worshipping creation, I'm talking about seeing the divine wonder in the creation and using that to worship God. And that's what the Psalms often do. Now, Psalm 104 is a favourite of mine, and it reminds us that God works a manifold, and the whole earth is full of God's creatures, that's verse 24, that God provides for all creatures' needs, verse 27, and that creation attests to the great, God's greatness, honour, and majesty, and that's verse 1. The idea of pilgrimage to special places in creation has a place in our language too. Abraham's Bethel, Moses' Sinai, Jesus' wilderness, etc. So let's abandon the iconoclasm that's produced a dull Protestant spirituality and embrace a God who makes wonderful things to draw us closer to him, extravagant beauty in its intricacy and sometimes its rawness and savagery. This means then that when uh, the human-induced climate change, species extinction, pollution of air and water, filling our oceans with more plastics than biomass, all of these things are blasphemies against the Creator. You know, the Christians are very quick to jump and say, oh, blasphemy, if you point out that God can be perceived to a degree through the creation, and yet they're, they're more than happy or happy to overlook the blasphemy of the way in which we mistreat God's creation, that that represents divine wisdom and knowledge and power and so on. You know, I'm talking about wholesale destruction here, wanton abuse, thoughtless disregard, all in the service of quote-unquote the economy as an entity detached from the world in which it sits. As an aside, we might also uh, see the disconnection of economy from ecology or the over-reliance on technical fixes as a form of Gnosticism. So the language of heresy is really appropriate, I think. Gnosticism places emphasis on knowledge to save us from physical existence. Technology, when used to fix problems alone, without a corresponding change of attitude or culture or mind, way of being, but merely as a way of shielding us entirely from the creation and our own abuses of it, could be described as Gnosticism. Now, naturally enough, as a scientist, it, I'm not arguing that technology has no place in fulfilling, bearing the image of God, but it's got too much of a prominent place in some circles. How then uh, would we as Christians enter the world of policy, of advocacy and of conservation? Well, firstly, with the recognition that we're not merely homo economicus, economic beings, but homo spiritualis. Christians will bring a particular narrative that we believe to be uniquely true, but we would do well to take Paul's approach in Acts 17 and look for doorways into conversations rather than bullying our way in and seeking to dominate, as the church has way too often done. Uh, the other language you might employ is that of creation as neighbour, and uh, a friend and fellow eco-theologian Chris Dalton has done that in a book that he wrote, which is based on his PhD a few years back. The church should rightly worry about flattening the relationship between humans and non-humans, arguing that humans have no special standing or role compared to non-humans, we do have a privileged position as image bearers of God, but both humans and non-humans are nefesh, hayah, or living beings. All animals have souls in the Hebrew sense, you know, not the, he the Greek ghost in the machine, um, 
but that of the holistic understanding of the the being as a created being. The earth brings forth living beings and we are formed from the dust of the earth, as I've talked about before, humans from the humus. We're already starting to see that identification in law. So, for example, the Wanganui River in New Zealand is now recognised as having a legal personhood. And corporations already received that right in the United States, and that's used to trump the rights of real human beings. So if economic entities are being given this status, how much more should a river or a landscape or a species have the right to legal recognition of its creaturehood? Uh, the creation groans in birth pains, Romans 8. The earth can mourn, Jeremiah 4.28. The trees of the field can clap their hands, Isaiah 55.12. This is the earth that brings forth living creatures, uh, Genesis 1.24. So theologian Michael Volker concludes that creation is an active partner with it in its own unfolding, acting parallel with God. That's the real message, one of the messages of Genesis 1. The world is not a stage with us as mere players on it. We are all active participants in the great theodrama of the journey from creation to new creation, the renewal of the creation temple. So Christians have a rich vocabulary to draw on to meet Monbiot's challenge. And remember that challenge was to reinvigorate our language about the world around us. We can have an active seat in public discourse, and what's more, we can get our hands dirty. Whether it's Christians and conservation organizations like Arosha, it's um, advocacy uh, groups like Common Grace or TIA, I'm talking in the Australian context here, or the TIAs in a number of countries, and or organizations like Extinction Rebellion, which isn't Christian but contains many Christian people, willing to engage in non-violent direct action. So the time is short. Get active and find whatever best suits you to get your hands dirty uh, as we worship in the temple of God's good creation. So there's two pieces I've written in the past, uh, Food for Thought. Again, thank you for listening and God bless. You have been listening to The Natural Philosopher. This podcast was written and produced by Mick Pope. The theme music is from Antonio Vivaldi's Four Seasons, conducted by John Harrison with the Wichita State University Chamber Players and downloaded from the Free Music Archive. You can subscribe to this podcast on Podbean, Apple and Google Podcasts and Spotify. You can also like and comment on my Facebook page, Mick Pope, Natural Philosopher.